Welcome to this Unorthodoxy podcast and to what is the 10th and final episode of a series that I've been doing on the Enneagram. By the way, I know that some of you, because of your feedback, um, which has been super helpful, so so thank you for that, um, some of you are still a little bit unsure of where you fit on the Enneagram. And so the best way forward for you, I think, will just be to do some digging of your own. It may help to go back to the beginning of the series and have a listen again now that you now that you have a, a larger overview of the Enneagram, but it may also help you to read a book or two. There are um, overwhelmingly many books out there on the Enneagram, so you may wonder where it will be a good place to start. Well, I've, I've read so many books on the Enneagram, and, and in some sense, I kind of like all of them because of the different flavors that they provide, but... I've, in my view, and this really is just an opinion, I think um, the best of introductions to the Enneagram is Ian Cron and Suzanne Stabile's book, The Road Back to You. It's the most accessible and to the point book out there um, to date that I've I've read. And I also think it's the funniest book on the Enneagram that I've read. So uh, if you enjoy something that, that has a bit of spice and humor, that'll be a good place to get to. Um... Then uh, the most comprehensive book on on the nine types uh, of the Enneagram that I've read is Jerome Wagner's The Nine Lenses to the Nine Lenses on the World. Um, and if you're keen on spiritual growth and that that's your focus, I really would highly recommend that you read Sandra Maitre's The Spiritual Dimension of the Enneagram. I think it's essential reading, and also Maitre's work. Um, is in general is excellent. So if you if you look at her other book, the, the Enneagram of Passions and Virtues, it's it's so thoughtful and and her posture on the Enneagram I think is very helpful. She's not so obsessed with in the Enneagram as a personality typing system. It's it's more like a discernment system. So in her her second book, she's focused much more on how the the nine uh, types, the nine points on the Enneagram reveal passions and virtues that every single one of us uh, needs to take into account and and grapple with. Um, I also, last recommendation is that you should, and I've mentioned this before, is that you should check out Beatrice Chestnut's book, The Complex Enneagram. One thing that I haven't covered, I I said that I wouldn't be covering it, and I have been true to my word on that front, um, in the series is this idea of, of the instincts. There are three different instincts, uh, self-preservation, sexual, and social, and those instincts definitely inform our our individual personality type. So Beatrice Chestnut's work, in specifically in her book, The Complex Enneagram, is excellent for grappling with different types. You'll discover, possibly to your amazement, that every single type has its own counter type. In other words, there's there's one type within each of the nine types that will not quite look um, like that particular number. So um, I find that really interesting. It turns out I'm also one of the counter types. So so it kind of helped me to to identify my own five-ishness, despite the fact that in some ways I do not read as a five. Then, um, of course, just keep in mind that the Enneagram requires a very definite non-judgmental attitude uh, to be a really effective tool 
It's easy, for instance, to get caught up in naming and shaming your own qualities instead of carefully discerning the ways in which the language of the Enneagram is or is not useful to you. In the end, the Enneagram is really just language. It's, it's a, a kind of framework, and the whole point of a language or a framework is to help us to engage with the real. Words, as I see them, are, are portals to life, ways of framing experience and engaging with truth, but they are never the point in themselves. Which brings me to the last idea I want to share before diving into the main content of this episode, which is that the Enneagram is best understood in relation to the world itself, and especially, obviously, to actual people. It's not meant to only be a, a thing about philosophical speculation. The, the narrative tradition of the Enneagram is clearly right to focus on the stories and experiences of people. And I think that this is something we should all be doing as much as we possibly can, because it leads to not just understanding labels, but understanding their relevance to, to individual people's contexts. So um, there you go. I hope those thoughts are helpful to you as you figure out your own journey forward. Now, when I started this series, I made this observation that the Enneagram deals predominantly in personal ideologies. And now I want to take a look at how that figures in larger scale issues. The Enneagram, as many Enneagram teachers point out, is an incredible system because it can be applied to almost anything. And this means you can look at a Ferrari go by you and you can say, well, look at that. That's a Type 3 car. And because it's a classic Ferrari, it's got a four wing. A little bit of nostalgia there. And you can look at that group of metalheads and say, well, there you go, probably at least, a bunch of counterphobic sixes. And that library book that hasn't been read for years because it's too thick and technical and no one knows Sanskrit anymore, that's a five. And that that wine tasting event, that's a type 7 event and with a 6 wing. And that Carrie and Lowell album by Sufjan Stevens, that's a very 4-ish album. And then Sufjan Stevens' Age of Odds album, that's 5 with a 4 wing, right? And you could watch the latest Fast and the Furious movie trailer and any type, even the trailer, it's, an eight, it's the 8th movie in the series. And it scores an 8 on the Enneagram. Not that the Enneagram is supposed to be about scoring <laughs> scoring it. But anyway, the Fast and Furious trailer for the latest movie is an 8 on the Enneagram with the 7 wing. It's got lots of people shouting and all kinds of action and theft and accidents. And I'm not going to watch that film. I hardly need to be yelled at for two hours. Um, of course, I could go on. Uh, just labeling things using Enneagram uh, numbers, but this is really just silliness. It has its own illuminations, of course, but it's just a creative exercise, um, and it's unlikely to yield any genuine fruit. Because I'm into the, the critique of ideology, though, I really think the Enneagram has some powerful insights to give us on a number of ideologies that run society. And so that is what I want to focus on here. The reason for looking at this societal Enneagram is to notice the larger spiritual deficiencies that are being in, encouraged in culture, and in fact, in some ways, encoded into culture, especially Western culture. Whether we like it or not, 
we are all part of society. Uh, and there's a huge chance that we're going to be part of a larger spiritual groove that may or may not be detrimental to us. Hopefully, it's not entirely detrimental, but there are always going to be negatives that we need to figure out and try and transcend. So we'd better wake up to what is going on. And the Enneagram just happens to be a tool that can help us with this. What follows is just a really rough sketch, of course, but for me, more detail and meat on this subject, I'd highly recommend reading one of the original Enneagram teachers, Claudio Naranjo's book, The Enneagram of Society. What I have to say here is basically I've taken his headings, his, his core ideas, and then I fleshed them out in my own way. I'm going to start, as I have before, with the central triangles and beginning at point nine. But now we're going to be looking at nine-ishness as a, in terms of social constructs and, and social movement. Nine represents the inertia of the status quo. This is the ideology of institutionalism or bureaucratization. The fact that even the best, most dynamic ways of seeing things and doing things will tend to become ossified and stale and old and dead in culture. Ideology, at least as it is described in the Matrix movies, tends to refer to the world that has been pulled over our eyes to blind us from the truth. It's the ready-made truth that we accept without challenging it. This inertia is something that we are all prone to displaying and accepting. It's, it's nine-ish sloth, not in the common sense of being lazy, but in the sense of getting stuck into a kind of rut or just getting stuck into a groove and sticking to it. And in the process, what happens is that we, we tend to miss out what ought to be done. The result is, if there is injustice, it tends to continue. If there are systems that are broken, well, then they tend to stay broken. The banality of evil, this is Hannah Arendt's idea, is represented by point nine on the Enneagram. Just doing what is expected for the sake of the status quo is often a way to perpetuate evil. Evil is most obvious in society, not as the obviously monstrous, as the terrifying or scary, but as the merely bureaucratic. Think of education as an example. Our education systems were set up in the industrial age and they function to produce people who are very well suited to serve industrialism and its aims. But, well, we're not living in that era anymore. And if you insert industrial age people into a digital era, you create all kinds of problems. Like, you create a world where Google is God, where you just need to Google it and you've got the answer to life, and where Twitter is a reputable news source, and where Donald Trump, um, a man with the intellectual capacity of a grade school bully and the moral authority of a mosquito, is the president of the most powerful country in the world. Thanks to nine-ish sloth in society, people are educated to accept the status quo, even when that status quo is a colossal error. They say that when God made the world, he saw it and, and he saw that it was good. And then the devil came along and told him, hey, why don't we institutionalize it? Let's take another example of how this plays out, something, something that's semi-related to education. 
The idea in Genesis of being fruitful and multiplying is a wonderful idea, especially because of the fun we all get to have in making it happen. But what happens is that idea, which is meant to be taken as a way of seeing the world and seeing the generativity and creativity of the world, that thing gets institutionalized. And then it produces absolute disaster. For instance, right now in this world, the planet cannot cope with all of us. The reverse might be true, of course. If you look at how China regulated reproduction, it produced a nation of, well, men. That's too many men, and all the sexual confusion and frustration that accompanies that eventuality. I'm not saying that we should make a new law or a new institution to solve these issues. That would be the exact way to misunderstand what I'm trying to get at. What I am saying is that whatever our response is to this specific issue, and to many other issues, of course, but to this one as an example, is that we should take the opposite of inertia, activity, deliberate, careful, thoughtful, personal activity to try and counteract this kind of problematic ideological stance. Of course, it's likely that this inertia, this slothful bureaucratization will be linked to the consequence of the fear that exists at point six of the Enneagram. So we move from point nine to point six here. This fear gives rise to a powerful need for authority. And this easily, more easily than we may like to admit, leads to authoritarianism. Naranjo notes that fear is a universal emotion, but when it dominates an individual's character, it is associated with an excessively hierarchic worldview. Totalitarianism, like fundamentalism, arises out of this kind of excessive fear. It sees a chaotic, anarchic world, and it insists that everything needs to be controlled. Clearly, anarchism might be the equally harmful opposite of this, since it assumes that if you take all the rules away, everything will be nice, and everyone will be nice to each other, and we won't have any killing or traffic accidents and that kind of thing. And I think this anarchic approach is also a gross misunderstanding of human nature. It's just as terrible of a misunderstanding as the misunderstanding of human nature that perpetuates totalitarianism. Sadly, the church has played a pretty powerful part in extending this fear and providing safety from it. So there's an ambivalence always that exists at point six. Um, again, this is a very Enneagram six type move. The strong emphasis in Western Christianity on heaven and hell as as dialectics or opposites, sets up coordinates for a kind of religious authoritarianism. We all need to fear the worst, and that's what we're taught to do, but also we don't have to worry so much when we're within the embrace of the church and its doctrines. Challenging unhealthy doctrines like this gets some of us into huge trouble, but that's because we're not taking the fear that supports institutions seriously enough. And that, by the way, is a profoundly virtuous thing to do, in fact. To fail to adhere to the confines of fear, that's called courage. And while it's true that courage can be misguided and wrong-headed at times, we need to encourage people to be courageous. Because courage is a sign of faith, and fear is only really a sign of faithlessness. In fact, 
My take is that the church, a church internal burn mode that is, has often encouraged fear as a way to generate faithlessness. And that way, it allows itself to provide an answer, kind of slightly warped faith um, that is really plausible in the face of whatever faithlessness they have produced. But a faith rooted in fear is a parasitic pseudo-faith, and it needs, I think, to be seriously doubted so that a truer, more courageous kind of faith can emerge. One of the other ways that faithlessness plays out is well understood when we look at point three of the Enneagram. If you live in a culture that demands success from you and seems to make you feel like a loser when you don't live up to its ludicrously high standards, you can be pretty sure that the vice that of that culture is vanity, a very three-ish vice. Vanity is a form of deceit that tells you that you are not worth anything unless you conform to some kind of arbitrary measure of achievement. Naranjo calls this ideology mercantilism. This is linked in obvious ways to bureaucratization and authoritarianism. Expectations are naturalized, and we find authorities who then tell us how to live. Let's just look at an example here. Take how many hours most people are expected to work. The system places these unreal expectations on people, and th through imposing these expectations, we are told that this is how things are, that this is how we will be measured, that this is where our worth and value should be found. People tend to get scored on their performance at work, or even in sport. I mean, sport is a an arena of measuring people's value by their success. It's terribly problematic. It's, it's living at the surface of things, not at the depths. And the implicit message of all this kind of scoring is that people are valuable if and only if they pull more and more weight. Think of Faust as the company or the organization. You get to work there and earn loads of money, but only if you sell your soul. It's a small price to pay, but that's kind of the, the thing that you have to do. But mercantilism is a clear case of surface overruling content. It's all name dropping and knowing who's who and fame and fortune and image. But there's very little genuine depth or insight. And that's really worrying. I've been observing global trends in academia, and what I'm seeing is that the trends are scary. In the US, you have adjunct professors who work insane hours, and yet they're barely making ends meet, if they're making ends meet at all. And then there's the stock phrase in academia, which I think is just poisonous, publish or perish, which when you think about it is really crazy. Your career dies if you don't push out papers and books, even Here's where it's really weird. Even if no one reads those papers and books, it's just about creating the semblance of inter intellectual activity. And sometimes it's, it's about creating the semblance of activity. Um, my favorite uh, living philosopher, Zizek, talks about how academics are particularly prone to creating pseudo-activity. Lots of talk, but nothing really happens. And gosh, it's so stupid. I know there's, a, there's really great work out there in academia, and I'm crazy about this world that I happen to in, inhabit, but 
I think it's really worrying how people tend to see their worth in terms of their productivity, in terms of what they put out. And this this bizarre kind of uh, way that um, academia is working globally is that academic institutions become like knowledge factories. They're not really interested in, in the genuine value of ideas. They're just interested in looking good. It's, I mean, academic institutions have to market themselves just like businesses. And what's basically happening as a result of all of this is that tertiary or even quaternary education, if you want to call it that, is getting devalued. Maybe this madness won't completely take over. I really hope it doesn't. Still, it's worth taking note of the fact that this, all of it, not just at universities, but everywhere where success and achievement are prized just a little bit too much, all of this is part of our vanity, which is what point three on the Enneagram is pointing to. This vanity believes that our self-worth is bound in systems and expectations and performance managing rather than in love and being and the being that grounds all of reality and the goodness that grounds all of reality. An awareness of this vanity must raise questions like, why are you working in this place? Why are you working all those hours? Do you have to work that hard? Are you spending enough time with your kids, with your partner, with your family, with your friends? Are you whole? Is your value located outside of the nine-ish bureaucracy and the six-ish support system? And if you fail, do you still get to be you? So that then covers the inner triangle of the Enneagram in terms of what is frequently observable in society. Point nine demonstrates how we fall asleep to our lives and slip into a conformist mode at point six, and then presume that our value and worth at point three is found in impressing others according to a false system's coordinates. This is something that the Enneagram helps us to see, not just for those of us who are nines and sixes and threes, but all of us. All of us fall into these traps in different ways. And this is why we need to be aware of the whole Enneagram and not just the parts. The fact that we miss what's going on in our own lives is something I've already alluded to, and this is an idea that is represented by point one on the Enneagram. This is the idea of repression. In ideology, this is evident in the fact that one perspective will be deemed qualitatively better or higher than any other given perspective. and in the process, then that other perspective is then repressed. It needs to be pushed down without any proper justification for why that happens. In this repressing or repressive ideology, there's a clear superior position and a clear inferior position. And this inferior position must be repressed. Aristocrats repress the poor. Intellectuals repress those who, with, who have different intelligences and gifts. Straight people or straight culture um, represses the LGBTQ community. Christians repress atheism and vice versa. And there's a lot of repression that, that's found in different forms in our culture. And the core idea that we get when we look at this issue is that what we repress will find a way to express itself in another way often in an exaggerated form, and often in very unhealthy ways. 
A key idea in the critique of ideology, which I get from Eric Hoffer, is this idea that the self will always be seeking a substitute self when it does not have its own room to be. This substitute self may be evident in excessive action, for example, um, as in the lives of many type 3s, or excessive intellectualization, as in many Enneotype 5s, or in any number of other excesses, but without a connection to the source or to God or essence, whatever you call this uh, presence, this substitute self will always be expressed in unhealthy ways. And this is most evident in the way that repressed and undervalued people often seek to express themselves in substitute ways. When the poor riot and express violence, it's easy to look at them and tell them not to be so barbaric. But the truth that we often miss is that their barbarism, if that's what we want to call it, is not the opposite of aristocratic sense, but the exact mirror image of the violence of the aristocracy. Of course, there is a new tyranny in liberalism, which I call the tyranny of the exception, where conservative values, even values I don't necessarily agree with, are denied room to breathe. There is no discussion even allowed. Well, how else do you think fundamentalism gets the fuel it needs to go on a rampage? And at the same time, fundamentalisms of various kinds are highly like, likely to spur the flaky liberals onto greater levels of flakiness. Point one, like point eight, which we'll get to next, represents a kind of all-or-nothing thinking, which is what uh, Richard Rohr defines, um, how Richard Rohr defines dualistic thinking. And at its root, it is a misunderstanding of the real. I guess what I'm saying here is simply that repression, at point one of the Enneagram, meets its result in violence, exploitation, and rebellion. And that's represented by point eight on the Enneagram. There are all kinds of ideological forms in this. Patriarchy is one of them. Uh, sexism is another. Racism. Any kind of discrimination and prejudice that you encounter in society, well, these are the result of ego revenge, all represented by point eight. So, well, now we have covered points nine, six, three, one, and eight. And what should be obvious, given the way that the Enneagram maps the world out, is that each of these root sins in society needs to recover a truer way of being and living. Point nine needs to recover a sense of the individual within the system and a sense of the importance of acting in the name of truth rather than just in the name of some vague, vague ideological groove. Point six needs to recover a sense of rest within the realness of reality and a sense of genuine faith that cannot be accounted for by some system of politics or ideology. Point three needs to recover a sense of true value apart from action, a genuine, honest, hopeful sense of the presence of one's presence within being um, that is not going to be dependent on some kind of approval, addiction, or false affirmation. Similar recoveries are going to be uh, true for or needed for the other numbers too. And please note, 
These are recoveries of the good and the truly real, not impositions of new ideological forms onto existing problems. If what we're doing is not recovering but imposing, that is, if what we're doing is not just finding and discovering something that's already there but imposing something else that isn't really there, then basically what we're doing is we're substituting one false self for another false self, which I think is what the points of disintegration uh, represent for each type. It's seeking another false self to solve problems that are actually not going to be solved in that way, right? So uh, now for point four. Well, you know by now that the root sin at point four of the Enneagram is envy. Before we get into this, um, if you want to get a better sense of how envy works and how important it is for understanding all human desire, I'd highly recommend that you listen to my series on mimetic theory. Um, that's episodes 20 to 24 of the Unorthodoxy podcast. The Enneagram complements mimetic theory very, very nicely, especially since the Enneagram looks at our substitute selves, while mimetic theory looks at the mechanism that is shared desire that generates our connection with those substitute selves. So in my view, mimetic theory adds a vital level of understanding to the relationship between the self and the world. So back to fours. While fours are likely to struggle the most with envy, with the sense of missing out and wanting to possess what others um, seemingly have, this pervasive sense of lack belongs to all of us. Think of the hashtag FOMO, fear of missing out. I think it's just a really great example of how this plays out in, in culture. Society functions, of course, largely on envy. And this describes the sense of lack that we all feel when we stand next to any other so-called superior. Again, every single type experiences envy, not just type 4s. The issue for each type is what is envied and what is perceived to be lacking. Ones, for example, feel that perfection or goodness is lacking. Twos feel that love and appreciation are lacking. Threes, that effectiveness and admiration are lacking. Fours, that originality and refinement are lacking. Fives will see that, will perceive that wisdom and a genuine ability to perceive things accurately. Those are the things that are lacking. And then sixes feel that security la is lacking. Sevens feel like fun and optimism are lacking. And eights will feel that respect and control are lacking. And lastly, nines will feel that a sense of peace and settledness, these things are lacking. So, um, and these are just, that doesn't cover everything, but it just gives you some kind of idea of what we're looking at. So just, just on the basis of these examples, the way that envy plays out in society is going to be pretty diverse. Still, since mercantilism is so prevalent, the economic bottom line usually gets to have the biggest say. The haves are envied, the have-nots are those who envy, and this links back to the violence represented at point 8 on the Enneagram. Many uprisings that go against those who are so-called superior are not in opposition to those who are superior, but a kind of representation of how envious the supposedly inferior people are. This is why so many of the oppressed people turn into oppressors. It's not moral superiority that drives a lot of their rebellions, but envy. Even, 
even the best rebellions or uprisings or revolutions are driven by a vice. Revolutions often fail because they are not really attempts to change things, point nine on the Enneagram speaking to us again, but simply attempts to change places. Anyway, this brings us to point five and what it represents for society, namely dissociation and disconnection. Point five at its worst represents apathy, a very perceptive kind of apathy, sure, but apathy nonetheless. We live in a hyper-connected world, of course. I'm recording this podcast in my study at home in Pretoria in South Africa, and you are listening to this podcast wherever you happen to be. And, of course, some of you are in South Africa and in Pretoria, like I am, but most of you are elsewhere. Some of you are in Russia, Australia, America, France, Sweden, England, Mozambique, Greece, etc. And most of you, sadly, I may never meet. Um, and that's part of how disconnection might function in society. Uh, social media is often, uh, people are aware of the fact that social media is also a kind of anti-social media. So every social ne network is simultaneously a kind of anti-social network. But this is not exactly the sense of dissociation and disconnection that I think is ideologically the most problematic for us. In fact, even though you and I may not meet, my hope is that I'm at least giving you something that is meaningful, something that you can uh, ponder, some, something that brings you into a deeper sense of connection, maybe with yourself and with others. We don't necessarily need to meet for connection to be possible. I think resonance uh, counts for a lot. So what I'm really talking about is something else. The main problem is manifest in our disconnection from the needs of others in society. In other words, we're, we're looking after our own needs at point five rather than the needs of others. And of course, I'm talking here about our immediate circle of influence. I'm not talking about some crazy ideal that everyone needs to go and like help everyone everywhere. That's You cannot be all things to all people without burning out significantly. The main need of others, I think, uh, and I think, obviously, there are others, but I think one of their main needs is to know experientially, existentially, in a deep and meaningful way, their own intrinsic value, their self, their true self-worth, without any kind of substitute self. This is what we need to endeavor to uphold. We may do this in myriad ways, of course. Uh, giving money is only one way. Giving time, sending a letter or an email, taking time to do a job well, paying attention. These things may all contribute to people allowing themselves and, and ha having opportunities to see uh, their own meaning and worth. Attention, says Simone Weil, is the rarest and purest form of generosity. We need to bring people back into a deep connection with the meaning of their lives, not just their material needs or desires, although these will, it will be difficult to connect people to a sense of their own meaning when they're starving. Um, we need to not be flippant, of course, of course, which is hard, since there's a very strong Epicurean strain in society, which is represented by point seven on the Enneagram. And believe me, you can try to encourage people to deepen their lives, 
they will resist it. I know this because I'm one of those people. I think a lot of us in different ways find different ways to resist depth, to resist, in in fact, waking up to our own uh, meaning because it's horrible to wake up. I mean, think about it. Every morning, sometimes, you know, when you wake up, it's it's hard. Um, most people want to keep sleeping because sleeping is lovely. The most powerful ideological injunction in society uh, today is the one that tells us that we should enjoy ourselves. So this is, again, this is where we are at point seven on the Enneagram. Positive psychology um, obviously has it's got so many plus points, so many good things about it. But I'm not sure if you realize that it can also be a kind of violence because it often insists on a standard of happiness that some people are going to find impossible. Just as people are encouraged to succeed at point three, they are encouraged to be happy at point seven. Encouraged is maybe uh, too light a word. In fact, um, it's Slavoj Žižek's contention that the central injunction, injunction of Western culture is the superego injunction to enjoy. So when I speak about laziness at point nine and the fearful desire to find support in an institution at point six, it may be easy to think that society is this boring and terrifying thing to inhabit, but that's not really always true. Often the thing that causes us to miss the real is that we're overly distracted, overly entertained, always switched on, always connected, always looking at the greener grass on the other side, forever overstimulated. Fun has been bureaucratized. Pleasure has become an institution. The demands of society are pretty tough, not at, just at the level of the obvious, but also at the level of how much fun we're supposed to be having. And this brings us at long last to point two on the Enneagram. One of the things that society imposes on us, often preventing us from encountering reality, is the search for love, which is, sadly, more often than not, at least as it is framed in society, a kind of search for false love. This is probably where I'm going to upset a few people, but if what I say encourages a bit of genuine thinking, then it'll be worth it. The Christian tradition came up with this radical conception of love, agape or caritas, depending on Greek or Latin, there you go, uh, which basically suggests that divine love, that is real, true love, is entirely unselfish. In other words, any benefit to the lover is accidental, not essential to the nature of love. In fact, because I regard God as truly transcendent and therefore above and beyond all notions of gain and lack, I think God genuinely does not benefit when we love her. Our love of God is God's love for us. If you want to use a strange phrase, that, that would be one. Uh, but before I get too metaphysical, I mention this idea because... What I notice in cultural products, novels, movies, etc., is a conception of love that is almost entirely rooted in selfishness. The typical rom-com has two people get into a relationship, and it's really fun. There's the usual fun stuff. The couple is made up of two ludicrously good-looking people, because that's how it works in culture. 
uh, in pop culture, that is. Uh, very charming, well-groomed, fit, etc. And there's sex too and every bit of vanity you could imagine, very little depth. And then when things get tough, there's a breakup. And then after a brief period of separation and a very flippant process of forgiving wrongs done, the film finishes on a high note. It's that breakup in rom-coms that I'm interested in here. It's usually built on a very simple idea, namely that when the relationship is no longer obviously beneficial, that is no longer fun or enjoyable or perfect, then the most reasonable thing to do is just to end it. Well, of course, in cases of serious abuse and serious violations of trust, this may be needed, and I'm not here trying to uh, create this kind of universal, institutionalized law that, that you know, encourages people to stick in uh, relationships or stay in relationships that are very detrimental to them. Uh, I'm talking about something else. Anyway, extremely abusive relationships are not the, the usual things that rom-coms represent. The foundational ideology of rom-coms, and it's, I, I mean, I, I, I notice it in rom-coms, but I notice that often people's ideas of, of how love work come from the movies. I don't know, it's not a great place to start, but there you have it. Um, and this foundational ideology in rom-coms is that the other is only worth loving when their love is beneficial to them. In other words, love is just a more sophisticated kind of selfishness. The book of Job is, for this reason, an amazing critique of ideology. In it, Job is dealt an awful hand by God. And Job does the thing that no one expects him to. He, he loves God back. His love of God is not conditional. Job benefits nothing from the relationship. In fact, the relationship is awful. Job is left in a, a terrible uh, state. In a way, you could you could argue, of course, that that the relationship is abusive. But this, for me, is a its literary effect because the Book of Job is a work of fiction, and it's not supposed to be taken as a literal story about how things actually are. It's an allegory or a parable. Anyway, in the end, the truth of God is made most manifest to Job, not because he was right or because he was living this peachy, pleasant, sevenish type life, but because he loved absolutely, unconditionally. Now, obviously, this does not provide a full account of the nature of love, and I absolutely don't want to leave you feeling like I've solved this issue here. I really haven't, and I'm aware of that. But what I do want to leave you with after this very long journey through the Enneagram is a strong sense that what is ultimately, ultimately needed is that we question the ways in which our loves are selfish, and then try to figure out ways to love in the divine sense. I'm certainly no expert at this. I'm just as much on the journey as you are. And of course, I'm working on myself, as I expect I'll be doing until I shuffle off this mortal coil. But one of the biggest illuminations I've experienced with regard to the Enneagram is this. We cannot find our true selves until we know and live what love really is. At point four, we need to find a deeper stability than our emotions will allow us, for instance. At point five, we need to find ourselves called to action. At point seven, we need to stop trying to escape into false joy and try to find that true joy involves difficulty. 
And at point two, we need to humbly submit ourselves to love in us and beyond us that does not expect anything in return. When we do this, when we do submit ourselves to this love, we are able to see truly what is needed in a relationship. And for some people, that may be that the relationship needs to end. And for others, it will be a deep sense that the relationship needs to continue and that they need to fight for the relationship to continue. I know this is all a huge amount to take in. I didn't go easy on you. Uh, I'm kind of sorry about this. This has turned out to be the last episode and also the longest episode of this series. Um, And I know that I haven't exactly provided answers to all the issues I've raised. What I hope this has been, though, is at least something a bit provocative. We all need to grow, and I really want to wish you well as you continue on your journey. If the Enneagram is the tool you use to grow, well, then that's that's great. I hope that what I've said here, and, and if you listen to it again, uh, which you may need to do, I hope that it resonates and continues to challenge you in some ways. And if you've just joined me for this series and haven't listened to the other stuff I've done, well, I hope you do stick around, as I've already said. Um, I... I try to keep things interesting for myself. And in the nice byproduct is that, um, well, I hope the nice byproduct of that is that it's interesting for you too. Take care, everyone. Cheers.